Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club of California. Good evening and welcome to the Commonwealth Club of California. You can find the club online at commonwealthclub.org, on Facebook and Twitter, and on the club's YouTube channel. As indicated, my name is Richard Rubin. I am currently the chair of the Commonwealth Club Board of Governors, and I will be the chair for tonight's program. I am now pleased to introduce our special guest, John Hope Bryant, who is the founder and CEO of Operation Hope. He is the past chairman of President Obama's Advisory Council on Financial Capability and author of the new book, The Memo, Five Rules for Your Economic Liberation. Make sure you get one if you can before you leave. We're delighted that Mr. Bryant will be discussing this book tonight with the Bank of the West's president and CEO, Nandita Bakshi. John O'Brien is an entrepreneur, an author, advisor, and he's one of the nation's most recognized empowerment leaders. He is the founder and chairman and CEO of Operation Hope, the Bryant Group Companies, and the Promise Homes Company. That is the largest for-profit minority-controlled owners of institutional quality single-family residential rental homes in the U.S. That's a mouthful. Mr. Bryant is also co-founder of Global Dignity, which is affiliated with the Forum of Young Global Leaders and the World Economic Forum. The last five U.S. presidents have recognized Mr. Bryant's work, and he has served as an advisor to the last three sitting U.S. presidents from both political parties. He's responsible for financial literacy, becoming the policy of the U.S. federal government. Mr. Bryant is also one of the top-selling African-American business authors in America. In his new book, The Memo, Mr. Bryant argues that true power in this world comes from economic independence, but too many people don't have enough money left at the end of the month. His message is simple. The supermajority of people who live in poverty, whom Bryant calls the invisible class, as well as millions in the struggling middle class, haven't gotten the memo until now. We're very pleased that today Mr. Bryant will be in conversation with someone he knows well, and that is Nandita Bakshi of the Bank of the West. Mrs. Bakshi a 30-year veteran of the banking industry, was named one of the top five most powerful women in banking in 2017 by American Banker and was recognized as one of the most influential women in Bay Area business in 2017 by the San Francisco Business Times. She is also one of the just three CEOs honored with the inaugural Inspire Award for women who are leading their companies with creativity, integrity, and strategic vision. Mrs. Bakshi is a member of the FDIC Advisory Committee on Economic Inclusion, the Board of Trustees of World Affairs, and the Supervisory Board of the Clearinghouse. Since joining the Bank of the West in 2016, Mrs. Bakshi has led a major rebranding, she has sharpened the bank's focus 
on the customer experience and has deepened the culture of innovation. Today, you're going to hear a discussion about achieving financial literacy and approaching wealth with a completely new attitude and about how the path to liberation is hiding in plain sight. Would you please give a big welcome to John Hope Ryan and Indita Bakshi. Thank you, Chairman Driven. Thank you, sir. Good evening, everyone. How are you doing today? Good evening, John. Good evening. It's good to see you here in the Bay Area. Good to be seen. (laughs) Better seen than viewed. That's true. I'll leave that alone. (laughs) Well, about a year ago, we were together, and this was in Atlanta. Atlanta, the annual meeting. Yeah, for your uh, global forum. Yeah. And I remember we were talking about the uh, invisible class and how to uplift them through economic liberation, job search, jobs, you know, job, job uh, creation. And we also talked about entrepreneurship. Yeah. And here you are with this book. Thank you for giving me an autographed copy a few months ago, and I've read it, I'll tell you, a few times oh. since then. Oh, extremely, extremely beneficial. And those of you that have, don't have the book, make sure you get one today. Make sure John gets to sign it for you. So, John, I'm going to start my, with my first question. And we're going to talk about your book today, or any other topic you want to talk about. Um, you talk about the importance of entrepreneurship. And I want to start by talking about when you say, don't just get a job, be entrepreneurial. You are capital. Mm. I want to explain, I want you to explain what do you mean by be entrepreneurial. Yeah. So before I do that, I want to acknowledge and thank the Commonwealth Club of California, which is one of the most incredible gathering spots and conveners in the world. I've been to 100 countries. Uh, I travel about 600,000 air miles a year, uh, which basically means I'm passing myself in airports. Oh, there he goes. Uh, And um, I think I'm one of the top 1,000 travelers on Delta, which is pretty disgusting. Um, but But I get to a lot of places. And um, I always love coming here. Uh, it is a very special place. Yeah. Uh, and, and you're lucky to have it in San Francisco. Um, and secondly, I'm honored to be here with you. Uh, and while people see you as this, uh, you know, Fortune 500 CEO, by the way, the only uh, female CEO of a bank of this size in the country, um, what they don't know is that her family came from Calcutta and uh, her father uh, I just learned always told her you can be a CEO you're going to be a C- no you're going to be a CEO so powerful my mother told me she loved me Going, this is going to your question. My mother told me, Wayne Smith, uh, told me she loved me every day of my life. Um, which was interesting because her mother didn't tell her that she loved her every day of her life. So she figured rainbows after storms. You cannot have a rainbow without a storm first. So make a n- negative into a positive. So my mother poured into me confidence, sure. self-esteem. Sure. 
And she told me she loved me every day of my life, and I believed it. And so there, the first quote of Operation Hope was, when we founded it, was that there's a difference between being broke and being poor. That being broke was economic, but being poor was a disabling frame of mind, a depressed condition of your spirit, and you must vow never, ever to be poor again. One of the quotes in this book, and it goes to your question, is that if you, if you have inner capital, you'll never be poor. You may be broke. But you'll never be poor. If you don't have inner capital, all the money in the world won't save you. So when your father told you, when you were vice president somewhere, you can and will be CEO, even you didn't believe it, but he self-affirmed that, and that gave you the confidence to dream big dreams. And, and the reverse is also true, that if you hang around nine broke people, you'll be the tenth. So be careful what you say. Be careful how you live your life. It may be the only Bible anybody else reads. And you are in many ways the walking, talking embodiment of that father and that mother that poured that love into you and dared you to dream big dreams. And look at you now. Uh, I'm so proud of you. Thank you. Thank you. I think my husband had a little bit to do with it, too. He stayed away from my success. Well, you know, I, I, you know, I, yes and no. It's very, it's very gracious for you to say that, but you know, uh, knowing you, knowing you as I have the last year, my guess is you did this mostly all by yourself. Uh, don't let the cuteness, that beauty, fool you. She don't play. Nandita does not play. Nandita's motto is: uh, I'd rather you respect me and learn to like me than like me and never respect me. And the bank, Bank of the West, she won't say this, so I'm going to say it, has helped Operation Hope to innovate a model, which you'll hear about as part of the book, that is now the national model in the country, respected by regulators and universally respected by bankers for uplifting people. We have a strategy that Lance Triggs here helped, it, helped us innovate that moves credit scores 120 points in 24 months. And nothing changes your life more than God or love, the moving your credit score 120 points. <laughs> So, so to answer your question, I know you didn't, don't think I have the capacity to stay focused, but. Uh, it's going to bring you back. You know, so capital comes from the Latin root word capitas, which literally translates knowledge in the head. So capital has actually nothing to do with money. That's our obsession. We've. We have assigned capital and told this book, by the way, which is on the top list for budget and finance, has no financial advice in it. <laughs> there's no 401k advice. There's no investment advice. There's no stock advice. I think that's actually somewhat irrelevant. It's about a mindset. Wealth is a mindset. And if you don't start with your own capital, where do you go from that? If I don't like me, I'm not going to like you. If I don't feel good about me, I'm not going to feel good about you. If I don't love me, I don't have a clue how to love you. If I don't respect me, don't expect me to respect you. And here's the big one. If I don't have a purpose in my life, I'm going to make your life a living hell. Because whatever goes around, comes around. You cannot give what you do not have. 
So conversely, when I was growing up and my mother, Juanita Smith, who was just this self-empowered individual, uh, I asked my mother if she got divorced from my father, are you going to get married again? She says, yeah, I'm going to get married. But when I get married again, he'll be a BMW. I said, mom, you're going to marry a car? She says, no, 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 a black man working. So... My mother has no self-esteem problem. And so when she told me she loved me every day of my life, I saw my dad as that small business owner. I had a sense of yes, I am, and yes, I can. When I was nine years old, a beggar came in my classroom and taught financial literacy. It's the beginning of the Community Reinvestment Act. He was a Caucasian banker, red tie, white shirt, blue suit, 6'2". I remember, as it was yesterday in Indita. Compton, California now. So the only person I saw who was white with a suit on in Compton was a detective and it was a bad suit. So I asked this guy, second session of this financial literacy class, home economics, what do you do for a living? And how do you get rich legally? I was dead serious. Nobody in my, like in Cancun, you know, in, in India, no, nobody wore suits. Nobody had a business card. Nobody was on a salary. No one was a professional. How do you role model what you, don't, what you do not see? He said, young man, I'm a banker and I finance entrepreneurs. Mm. I had never heard those two words before. I said, I don't know what an entrepreneur is, but if you're financing them, I'm going to be one. <laughs> and I went home and cracked open the book. It's a French word. Your parent company, entrepreneur. I, I looked and found That's out what an entrepreneur was. French word I can pronounce correctly. Well, I can say, I can say, je t'aime. Yeah. I can say, merci beaucoup. It's a whole other conversation, but... I can say I love you. That's about it. But 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 I, it was, entrepreneur was this French word, and and then I then I said, well, what an entrepreneur for what purpose to become successful to become? I found another word, philanthropist, and that was it, the endorphin sparked in the right side of my brain, and I was enmeshed in this new vision, and I opened the neighborhood candy house in my neighborhood when I was ten the next year, and my mother loaned me forty bucks. She wouldn't give me the money. She said, life is tough. Pay it back. <laughs> and uh, I lost half the inventory because I was interested in eating it, not selling it. <laughs> um, but then I got disciplined and focused and made $300 a week when I was 10 years old and put the liquor store out of the candy business. And, uh, and once I did that, once I put the liquor store out of the candy business, there's nothing I can I do? Uh, that capital was inside of me. And so I started from that point to redefine what poverty really was. Beyond sustenance, poverty of a roof over your head, food on your table, re- health care, which should be a human right. Uh, beyond the basics, all other poverty, I decided, was, was in your head. I know you find it hard to believe, but I'm actually finished. <laughs> so enthralled listening to you, John. I could sit here for the rest of the afternoon or the evening and just have you talk about that. No, that's lovely. That's great. And you were 10 years old when you were making $300. Yep. And with inflation, that's a lot of money today. I mean, it's probably, it's probably $1,000 a week today, oh. maybe more. Yeah. It was a lot of money. It was a lot of money now. It's a lot of money now, indeed. Uh-huh. In fact, I, and you were talking about you know being poor, or I didn't consider myself poor, but when I came to the country, I was making... As a teller, $4.25 an hour. Mm-hmm. And uh, for a period of time, I worked two jobs. Yep. 
My husband was a PhD student and brought in measly $8,000 a year as a stipend, which in India, when we multiplied it with, you know, 40 rupees, was a rupee, lot of yeah. money. Oh, yeah. But we didn't take into consideration that half of that money would go away in rent and all of that good stuff. But I didn't feel poor at all. No. I felt that the world was right there for me to come and make whatever I wanted to make of it. Yes. So let's now, so your, in my experience, even though we grew up thousands of miles away from each other, are very similar. Mm-hmm. We grew up in this environment that was poverty-stricken, but we weren't poor. Here's the opposite narrative. You come from the, the shores of Africa, not because you were an idiot, not because you were stupid, but because you were in the 15th century the world's economy was agriculturally based. And if you're in Africa, you're an agricultural genius. You understand soil. You understand land. You can work, can't see in the morning, can't see at night because you're used to the elements. Uh, So they went and got the most brilliant people they could find for agriculture and nurturing in that environment and you want to call it imported or exported, them to the United States, and you're talking about in 1619, Jamestown, Virginia, the first 19 slaves, or 16 slaves and three indentured servants, the white indentured servants were able to work their way out of it. The blacks were enslaved. And you now you fast forward, and for 350 years you were told you ain't nothing. You, your self-esteem is beaten out of you. Uh, you're held down while your wife's abused. Translation, you can't do anything about it. I'm going to crush your spirit. Why? Because if I'm 10 slaveholders to 100 big brawny men, you can overrun me unless I break your spirit. And I need you to be machinery in this environment. I need you to be machinery. So 350 years of that, 100 years of Jim Crow that ended in 1970, not 1870. I think I have no, this is the only thing that I don't have a, a, a fact to base it on. But my, my sense is, growing up in black America, that 70, 80% of black Americans clinically undiagnosed depressed. And for good reason. So I went to Birmingham, Alabama, and I gave the same speech and to the Rotary Club. And the, the audience got their back up because I'm talking about uncomfortable topics. And I said, look, take the race out of this for a minute. You go through half of what I just described for half of the time, you'd be crazy too. And all I could do is acknowledge it because it is common sense. So you take this group of people who self-esteem is in the toilet, confidence is in the toilet, and what I've said poverty, Nandita, is half of poverty is low self-esteem and lack of confidence in yourself. If you don't know who you are by nine in the morning, by dinner time somebody's going to tell you who you are. Then you have 25% of poverty, which is crappy role models in a crappy environment. And if all you see in your neighborhood is symbols of success, are rap stars, athletes, and drug dealers, why is anybody surprised that kids grow up wanting to be a rap star, an athlete, or a drug dealer? It actually is good common sense. You're modeling what you see. Why my businessman? My daddy was. I saw a beggar with a business suit on. I'm modeling what I see. Why do I love myself? My mother told me to. Why, why are you the CEO? Your, your daddy said, you will be a CEO. I'm going to come back from the dead and, and haunt you if you don't become a CEO. <laughs> and he would. And your daddy's still with you. Yeah. 
and and so and so the second part of poverty, uh, second part of second part, environment. Mm-hmm. Environment is basically, as I said earlier, if you hang around nine broke people, you'll be the tenth. And then the last part of poverty is um, hope mm-hmm. and opportunity. The most dangerous person in the world is a person with no hope. And if you have low self-esteem and low confidence and crappy role models in a crappy environment and you have no hope, that you see the glass of life is half empty, not half full. It's the same glass. It depends how you see it. So now what's gentrification? Gentrification is I'm depressed, distressed. I don't never got the memo on money. I, 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 I've been by this horrible house for 10 years. I think it's normal. Somebody else comes in and says, oh, look at that shack. Let, it's 10 minutes from my job. Let me rehab it, buy it, rehab it, and rent it. Buy it, rehab it, and sell it because it's, it's cheap and it's centrally located. You know, by the way, only in America were we stupid enough because we didn't like black people or whatever to move ourselves to, out of central cities, two hours out of the city to the suburbs. And now people are like, shoot, I'm tired of driving two hours to get to work. <laughs> Maybe black folks ain't so bad. <laughs> I want to be multicultural now. I, 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 maybe, maybe barbecue is for you. Um, lunch for me. So gentrification is just capitalism. That's all it is. It's common sense. An inner city in France is called Paris. An inner city in, the, in London, in the UK, is called London. This is not. This is not rocket science. Every inner city in America is going to be reclaimed because it's centrally located real estate. So we've been having an irrational conversation for a long time. And what this book is, is a common sense, mind you, disruptive approach that's non-racial, is non-political, is non-partisan, it is positive, is aspirational, and and it is fact-based. And it is something that everybody ultimately can relate can relate to. But by but but Nadita, what I wanted the point I want to make was that there's reasons why people don't succeed. So here's an Andrew Young quote. He was Dr. King's right arm in the civil rights movement. To live in a system of free enterprise and not to understand the rules of free enterprise must be the very definition of slavery. Think about that for a minute. So we think about whether you're white rural America, poverty, or urban black and brown America, poverty. Here's what you see. A check casher next to a payday loan lender, next to a rent-to-own store, next to a title lender, next to a liquor store, and then a church down the street trying to make all of it a little better. And you can close your eyes, go white rural or black and brown urban. It's the same thing, and it's all a 500 credit score neighborhood. It's not black, it's not brown, it's a 500 credit score neighborhood. And I'll tell you something else, 700 credit score neighborhoods don't riot. You've never seen a 700 credit score neighborhood riot in your entire life. People with a 700 credit score want to go shopping. They don't want to go rioting. So that's not a black thing or a brown thing, that is a green thing. And and so and so what I'm trying to do and what we will do in this movement, Nandita, is to reimagine America Remind us of our specialness, of the gift that got you here, that allowed a young black boy from Compton, California, to go from nothing to running 40 companies with a global footprint. Everybody in here is a descendant of immigrants. Even my European friends who are here 
your great great grandfather got on a plane, boat, train, and said, came to Ellis Island and said, I can, I, I can live the American dream. All of us, except Native American Indians, everybody here came here to live the American dream. And that's why this country is, is a bunch of type A personalities. Okay. That is so true. All Italians didn't come here. All Polish didn't come here. All Jewish didn't come here. Those with chutzpah, self-esteem, confidence, and belief. Look at you. My God. Uh, so, and then you have this group that got on the wrong boat. And, and on top of that, they never got the memo. On top of that, they never got the memo on, on money. And there is a memo on wealth, on entrepreneurship, on banking. Uh, there's a memo on how women succeed. It's not written down anywhere. There's no textbook. There's no curriculum. And so I decided to write uh, a book that put it in the five easy steps. You know what? And I will tell you, I wish I'd gotten that book when I got here hmm. 30 years ago. Hmm. Um, and I think you should write a book on the memo for women to be successful. Hmm. I think it's very much needed. And I think you can. Hmm. And I think uh, the book should not have, again, any racial biases. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter the color of your skin. I think some of the challenges are just universal. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's, it's a very, uh, it's a wonderful challenge. I would be honored if women would respect me and my voice enough to allow me to write such a book. Because I think that, I mean, literally without women, there'd be less men. <laughs> some of you got that, some of you didn't. <laughs> but... But I think that, God, that women are closer to God than men because women are the umbilical cord. Women give birth. Women uh, have an intuition. Every woman in here can tell you, he ain't right. <laughs> <laughs> I, you ain't even met her. I, I, he, some, he ain't right. <laughs> that's, 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 that's God speaking to you and through you. And so I, I, I think that women have, have the magic of this world and, of course, micro-lending in developing countries is completely reliant on women. And I know you have some special stuff coming up with entrepreneurship around the empowerment of women, which I applaud 100% and want to support you uh, on. Uh, I think they're the secret weapon. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about hope, and let's talk about hope business uh, inside. This is the, um, something that Bank of the West, in partnership with your organization, started years ago. Yeah. And I know it's a very, very successful program today. So my question is, um, how have you seen these programs, like Business in a Box, uh, change the mindset of our young people? Because that is the future, right? Yeah. So I'm going to give you that example, and then I'll talk about Hope Inside, which is what we did, innovated together. I'll do it quickly so we can get to some questions. But um, Hope Business in a Box Academy is basically Shark Tank for kids. So we go into very challenged neighborhoods and we give kids, we challenge them to do a business plan. They have a course in dignity, a course in entrepreneurship. They work together, create a business plan. We have two minutes to pitch their business idea, timer in front, go. And one of my one of my lieutenants was in the restroom, and I'm, I'm going to apologize to you guys. I'm going to just tell you bluntly this story. Uh, recognize his broadcast. I will clean it up a little bit, but... <laughs> He was in. A, you gotta understand this. This is is in the hood. D a hyphen h o o d. The hood, and in the hood, there's a different language. And so, he 
this guy had lost the pitch. Him and his team lost the pitch. He kicks the door into the restroom. My guy is in one of the stalls, and he didn't know he was the guy didn't know he was there. Man, this is a bunch of BS. These people ain't about nothing. You know we were better pitch. You know we were. You know we we had a stronger product. His friend says, "Yeah, man, but you know the other guys had matching T-shirts and they had on, they had on. They, one guy had a bow tie on. You know, they, they had seen they had practice before. They had a script. They, like they prepared, man. I mean, you know. And the, the other guy said, "That's all right. We're gonna win this next time. In order to win it next time, you got to come to school. You see, we've disconnected aspiration from education. Let me rephrase that. We've disconnected education from aspiration. No one wants to eat their vegetables." Nobody wants to eat their broccoli. Nobody wants to be told, do you go get a bank account? Ugh. Nobody wants to be told, nobody wants a car loan. You want a cool car. Nobody wants a mortgage. Ooh, I can't wait to get a mortgage. Ooh, I want to be in debt for 30 years. No, you want to be a homeowner. It's aspirational. So we're not selling uh, education as a place, as a gateway to, to achieve your aspiration. Then we are not selling And the kids aren't buying. And that's why sports has been such a great gateway, because kids will stay in school in order to play sports. Arts is another gateway. And this was my way of making business and entrepreneurship Mm -hmm. something that's practical. Everybody can't be a sports star, right? Uh, but, But a gateway for most kids to then get excited about their education again. So hope inside... By the way, I didn't do this because you were going to ask me that question. I didn't know you were going to ask me that question. This bracelet is made by a 16-year-old girl named Jael. She's probably watching because she's a big fan of of Operation Hope, who we put in business. She won the pitch, and she made actually the official um, Christmas presents for Operation Hope in 2017 and and got a $5,000 order from us. Uh, And she's now in business. Her self-esteem is broader. And the suit was made by a a guy we gave a $35,000 loan to named Drove Clothing, Ryan Taylor. He's now doing a million five a year. Wow. Uh, he makes all my clothes. Okay, quick story. So, 1874 is when Bank of the West was founded. It was not called Bank of the West. It was uh, San Jose Bank of Gold or something, but it was in San Jose. It was, in the, it was basically, it was a gold standard. And uh, don't laugh at me, it was more than you knew. Uh, more than you knew, you work at the bank. Uh, but, but... But in 1874, uh, this bank was somebody's dream. It was some small business owner's dream. Every big thing was once a small thing. Walmart was once Sam Walton with a pickup truck in a storefront and a high school education. UPS was Jim Casey with 100 bucks and a bicycle. We forget our own storyline. Everybody wants to be an American but Americans. Anyway... giving you guys my best stuff. It's going right over your head. Oh, yeah. And, and so in 1874, the magic happened here. And of course, in 1970, Paris got involved and you were a $35 million, no, $350 million asset bank. Then now you're 10,000 employees and people think you're an institution, but it started small. Well, in 1865, after the Civil War, 10 years, nine years before your founding, Abraham Lincoln um, did something pretty magical. January, we'll do this real quick. January 1865, he had a general go to Savannah, Georgia, and allocate 400,000 acres to former slaves who said, we don't want a handout, we don't want welfare, we want land. We want to do for our... Now, see, that wasn't a black answer, it wasn't a Latino answer, it wasn't a white answer, it wasn't an Asian answer, it was just an answer. 
And they said, fine, here's this land. And it was down the coast on the east from North Carolina, 30 miles from the beach, all the way to what we call Miami, was set aside for former slaves. Now, today we love that land, Nandita. But in 1865, in an agricultural arena, it was a horrible place to plant. Mm -hmm. You put your seeds down on the beach and wake up tomorrow, your crop's in Jamaica. So... But we didn't complain about it. We didn't whine about it. We got busy. No Snapchat, no Facebook, no Twitter, no Instagram, no cell phone. Probably why. We hustled so hard. The next month, the general said, my God, they're so industrious. Give them a mule. 40 acres. So that was January, February. March 3rd, 1865, Abraham Lincoln signed legislation for the Freedmen's Bank. A bank chartered to teach free slaves about money. The same day, he put in God we trust on U.S. currency so that slavery and government-endorsed capitalism never would meet again. And he was killed the next month, April 1865. That was three of the most incredible months of public policy in our history, but no one knows it because he was assassinated. That bank was across the street from the White House. Proximity to power because it was important. And Frederick Douglass, who we know as an abolitionist, was a businessman who ran that bank. He owned real estate in Baltimore, lots of it. He was worth $6.5 million in 1865. Nice change. He put up $10,000 to, to, to keep the bank going in 1865, which is $20 million today. The bank fails, and it was said the failure of this bank did more to set free slaves in America back than, in America back than 10 more years of slavery. And then you pop your fingers from 1865, 1874, that bank failed 1874. Your bank was founded all the way to 1968 when not an economist, not a businessman, but a preacher named Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. launched the Poor People's Campaign in Memphis, Tennessee. And it was about taking poor whites. There's more poor whites in America then and today than anybody else. Poor whites, poor African Americans, Asians, Indians, others. And he said this, you cannot legislate goodness, you cannot pass a law to force someone to respect you. The only way to social justice in a capitalist country is economics and ownership. That's a quote you don't know about Dr. King, but he was killed April 68 before his first march. So it's not like, here's my point, Nandita, it's not like black folks and brown folks got the memo on money and screwed it up. Just never got the memo. Every time somebody tried, they were assassinated. And I decided to finish what Lincoln started and to finish what Dr. King dreamed of. And so we were successful in getting the Treasury Department and the White House to rename the Treasury Annex Building, the Freedmen's Bank Building, two years ago because that's where the bank was located. So if you Google on your phones now, you'll find I'm the only American citizen to ever rename a White House building. And to make that real, we decided to put hope inside on the ground in bank branches. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now we have 109 locations and orders for 500 across the country in the last three years. And we're raising credit scores 120 points and making people bankable. But the model for all of that work across the country that gave us the Innovator of the Year Award from the American Banker two years ago, that model came from Bank of the West. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Listen to thousands of our podcasts on iTunes or Google Play. And when you're in the Bay Area, 
Please join us live for one of our 450 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. And now, back to our program. Thank you. It's definitely a partnership. And um, earlier this evening, as I was talking to Yolanda from our bank branch sitting there and Yolanda from uh, Operation Hope sitting there, they were telling me that how they are teaming up together to sign up for uh, mega numbers of loans for um, the low-income household community. Fantastic. You know, and this is exactly what we need to make sure. You talk about invisible class. You talk about how do we uplift them. It is, it is the credit score. It is making sure that credit is available to them and uh, they can do all the right things. So appreciate that. You mentioned also about the women's entrepreneurship, and we absolutely had a workshop uh, in December where we invited um, several female um, entrepreneurs to come in and help us think about how can we as a bank help with that. So what do you feel that other organizations can do to help with this cause, help diverse and women? You talked also about microfinance and how important that is to women. What, what should other organizations do? You know, I, I appreciate the question. I know you had to ask it in that way. I think if we were having a private conversation, you would not have asked that question because you know the answer is so obvious. It it frustrates me that we have to sneak up on this question, that we have to, like, as if, as if America's doing so-called poor people a favor. 70% of this economy is consumer spending. 70%. Rent payments, Starbucks, pine Folgers, going to the grocery store, uh, putting gas in your car, paying your phone bill, nothing fancy. 70% of this economy is people from living from paycheck to paycheck with too much month at the end of their money. That's what's driving the largest economy on the planet. But we give them no respect, no regard, We treat them as if they're some afterthought. And 70% of Americans are living from paycheck to paycheck. And 64% of all Americans don't have $500 for an emergency. But yet, somehow, in spite of that, they're still driving the largest economy on the planet and raising their children and getting no credit for it. And every big business, as I said earlier, was a small one. Every success story can reach back within two generations to some really humble beginnings. And the largest economy in the world happens to have every race of people within its borders. The two largest economies in the U.S. are California and New York. The two most diverse places in the U.S. are California and New York. That's not an accident. You want to find an economy stuck on stupid? Find one with no diversity. Mississippi rejects diversity. It's the poorest state in America. They say we don't want the government, but a third of every dollar going into Mississippi is a federal dollar. See, I know facts. I don't get hung up on emotions. It's facts. The fact is that women run our domestic engineers. They're running households. They're making decisions. They they are are providing the stability. Uh, They're already entrepreneurs. They're hustlers. Uh, Hustlers for life, hustlers for humanity, hustlers for dignity. Hustlers meaning they're working hard. And and, and in 
And many entrepreneurs chose that path because they couldn't get the, the job in the tower. They didn't know. I mean, there's only one reason to go to Harvard. Harvard's a wonderful place. I have a certificate from Harvard and love it. It's, I'm not dissing Harvard. I think it's a great place. But there's really only one reason to pay five times more to go to Harvard than your state university. And it's not because you're going to be five times smarter. Because the class of 2018 is going to hook each other up for the next 40 years. That's it. It's an That's it. Don't, don't complicate it. It's a club. And if you don't believe that's true, here's what I know. You have idiots and fools running countries and companies and brilliant people who are homeless precisely because it's not about how smart you are. Sorry, it's not just about how smart you are. So entrepreneurs literally created everything. The internet was evolved by the government but made real by entrepreneurs. Uh, Steve Jobs changed everything. Uh, it could be argued it would be more important to have a black Bill Gates than a black president. And I like Barack Obama. I think he's a fabulous guy. He has nothing to do with it. You need job creators and you need, you need people who are going to change the world. And that is an entrepreneur. And so when we say what should companies be doing, it to me sounds a little paternalistic or this is what companies should be doing for their enlightened self-interest. This is the future. And, 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 and demographics, uh, uh, and, and, and our, our trend line of where this country is going is our destiny. So I think that, that we have a, for my business plan, when I go to bank CEOs, I don't say, help me help poor people. I say, let me help you achieve your strategic objectives. There's a hundred million Americans who are outside of the, of, of, of the economic mainstream. Let's rehabilitate them and bring them back into the mainstream, make them customers and producers and entrepreneurs. Don't give them a handout. Give them a hand up. Do you know there's 44 percent of every American, 44 percent of all African-Americans have a credit score below 620? Forget police brutality for a moment. Forget racism. Forget bias. Forget job discrimination. Forget all that. You're out of the game. You can't get a small business loan at a 620 credit score. You can't get a decent home loan at a 620 credit score. You are locked out of the credit system. You think it's bias. You think it's racism. You, no, 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 no. It is literally no one can get, no bank can give you a loan. And they can't tell you that because of risk management, regulation. They'd be discriminating against you by telling you that you shouldn't be taking the application. So now it's, it's literally... Is what you don't know that you don't know that's killing you, but you think you know. So when you say, should companies be doing this or what should they do? I think you doing this is really research and development for the bank's future so that you have a customer in 10 years. It's in your... Makes good business sense. Makes good business sense. And it's morally sound. It's morally sound indeed. Yeah. We want to be the good bank. You want to be the good bank. Absolutely. Um, Let's... um, Look at importance of relationships and network. You talked mm-hmm. about going to Harvard and the value of that, right? Yeah. And I will tell you, coming here as an immigrant 30 years ago, I didn't know anybody professionally. I yeah. did not have that network, right. uh, not having gone to school here. Um, as you, and you talk about it in your book, um, can you share with the audience the concept of relationships as investment? <laughs> this, is, this is almost the entire ballgame. So I say something pretty provocative in the book, Mandita. 
Uh, I'm going to anger you for at least 20 seconds because what I'm about to say won't make sense to you. If you're morally sound, this will offend you. I say in the book, and I'm going to be provocative here and say this is a black, poor neighborhood, just to make a draw a really provocative picture, that there are instances where a black, poor family is dumber than a white, wealthy family. Now, that should offend you. You should now want to turn me off completely. Let me now base it with facts. You grew up, you're a black female. You have two children. You have two jobs. You're working from can't see in the morning to can't see at night. Your child is dodging bullets on the way to school, trying to not get on the wrong side of law enforcement. Child has permanent PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. You're trying to, you're, you're on the bus in the morning. When you leave, it's dark. When you come home, it's dark. You're trying not to be mugged, trying not to be attacked. You got your, you're looking over your shoulder. You're not getting respected at the at job. You're not being respected in, in the street. You come home. You're looking around your shoulder. You come, you're just barely surviving. Your mentality is surviving, not thriving. Over, all your friends are, are hustling and struggling. Nobody has an aspirational career. No one is a professional. No one is an entrepreneur. No one's a philanthropist. You're getting dumber. Trans, now I'm a provocative. White family, two-parent household. They both work. They come home at 5 o'clock. They go to the museum to, with the kid once a month. They go to a restaurant once a week. They go to a movie twice a week. They, they sit and do homework with their kid at night. They have dinner with each other. It's a calm, loving environment. That family's getting smarter. The first example was cognitive narrowing. Depression, pounding on more pounding, dumbs you down. Surviving is a different strategy than thriving. Then you have another group who is like, ah, isn't the world a wonderful place? <laughs> that group is just thriving. And they assume that their life is the only narrative it is. Living in a bubble. Living in a bubble. So you can be a very average person with extraordinary relationships and it is hard not to not to succeed in fact your your friend who's senior vice president of a corporation will hire his stupid cousin <laughs> just to get him off his couch <laughs> and to keep him from begging him for another loan look i know my cousin's dumb but he can't do much harm just put him in the mailroom but meanwhile somebody else with a better resume better credentials, smarter, more intelligent, doesn't know anybody in HR, doesn't have a relationship. There's no racism here. There's no bias here. There's no, no one's hating on you. They don't know you. So in the book, I get an example of this guy in Harlem. He said, oh, President Reagan is a racist. It's going back 20 years ago. President Reagan's a racist. I said, look, man, uh, I know President Reagan. We're born on the same day. He's a good man. No, no, President Reagan's a racist. Look, look, his policies were not exactly my policies. He was from California. But uh, he's not my kind of policy guy. But he's a decent human. No, he's a racist. Let me explain something to you. Not explain. Let me explain something to you. I said, President Reagan don't know no black people. He wasn't raised around no black people. Best I know, he went ain't married to a sister unless... His wife has interesting pedigree and background, but the DNA these days, you never know. 
but his culture, his environment was not people of color. President Reagan don't hate you. He's not thinking about you. You're not even on his radar screen. So when he goes to help somebody, he's not trying to hurt you. You're not even part of who he's trying to hook up. And then if you come and you're the Congressional Black Caucus and you're calling him the devil, then he's like, well, why should I sign any legislation for you? You've already demonized me and all this is personal. So here's my philosophy for life. And I know you live this way because I've watched you, how you manage. Talk without being offensive. Listen without being defensive. And here's the most important part. Always leave even your adversary with their dignity. Because if you don't, they'll spend the rest of their life trying to make you miserable. It becomes personal. So Dr. King's brilliance, and this was also the brilliance of Mother Teresa and Dr. Dorothy Height and a lot of these civil rights heroes and sheroes, was they always left their adversary with their dignity. So Dr. King would march, shut down that town's economy, then tell Andrew Young, Bashir Young, to put on a business suit, go behind closed doors, meet with 100 business leaders in town, get them to take down the whites-only signs in their shops, give them a dignified way out of their own dilemma. He wasn't trying to hurt them, kill them, damage them. He was trying to get the signs down. So who, who integrated the South? It wasn't government. Soda shops. Think about it. Woolworths, J.C. Penney. Bus stations, which were privately owned, these were businesses who found that it was not in their enlightened self-interest to discriminate. Yep. So yeah. I think that you're on the right side of history with what you're doing with women entrepreneurship. I think it's just good common sense. I don't think it's some philanthropic giveaway program. I just think it's progressive. And I think that corporations that embrace diversity and embrace inclusion and embrace forward-leaning policies are just going to be more successful. In your book, John, you talk about the outer capital and the inner capital. And I found it fascinating because you talk about outer capital being property you own, financial stability and all of that, and the inner capital talking about relationship, the spirit, the mindset and all of that. Can yeah. you expand that on, on, on that a little bit? This is so devastating to me because I think this is, um, you never even get to relationship capital because you're angry. Now, you may have a right to be angry. <laughs> you may have every reason to be angry. But anger doesn't sell. Anger doesn't sell. Negative energy doesn't sell. Nobody wants to be around anybody negative. Mm. Nobody wants to be around anybody with a chip on their shoulder. You can feel it. We're not human beings having a right. spiritual experience. We're spiritual beings having a human experience. You can feel somebody's energy. And you're like, ooh, I don't want that. So here's the real rub. You did nothing wrong. You've been spat on, disrespected, dismissed, underestimated, undervaluated, but you cannot steal. You cannot steal, afford to be angry. And when you're angry, you start to react, not to respond. And whenever you make a decision emotionally, it's going to be the wrong decision. Now you're winning the battle and losing the war. So now, so let's, let's assume you get discriminated against in the boardroom. I'm sure you've witnessed this. Chauvinism, all kind of stuff. Somebody says something that's completely inappropriate. You have a right to curse them out. Who you think you are? You can't talk to me that way. The minute you walk out of the room, it's, see, she, I told you she's crazy. <laughs> so 
You have got to know who you are. That's essentially the message. That there, my, Reverend Murray, who raised me in my adult, young adult life, told me there's a, that, that is not what people call you. It's what you answer to that's important. And never answer out of your name. And then I added to argue with a fool, proves there are two. So you have, so I, so what's my number one asset? I'm reasonably comfortable in my own skin. No one's comfortable in their own skin. If anybody tells you they are, they're lying. We're all afraid. We're all fearful. We all have insecurities. I screwed up this morning. All right. So by the way, you want to set yourself free? Admit that you're imperfect because a saint is a sinner that got up. Everybody knows you're not perfect. Who are you lying to? I mean, who do you think you're fooling? You're only fooling another fool. Anybody who knows real people knows you're not perfect. You might as well just present your authentic self. And here's the real thing. Nobody buys, you know this when you're buying banks and companies, nobody's buying walls, bricks, buildings, structure. You're buying management teams. So you're looking at somebody in the eye, even though there's a contract, and you're saying, can I trust this? Is that right? Am I comfortable? Right? And that's a cultural thing. And I think culture is everywhere. So you're, what kind of culture are you building in your family? What kind of culture are you building in your home? What kind of culture are you building in your business? And you can't afford to be black for a living, Latino for a living, white for a living, racist for a living, negative. I cannot guarantee you if you read this book that you're going to be successful. But what I will guarantee you, if you go negative, you're going to fail. I absolutely guarantee you that if you go negative, you'll fail. John, I've got several questions from the audience. Yeah. So this one I really like because it's on home ownership. Oh, yeah. And actually, I'm, I'm dealing with the same issue, so I thought I'd uh, let's... No, you're dealing with mansion ownership, not home ownership. No, no, no. She might even be dealing with block ownership. You think. <laughs> Have you looked at the prices in San Francisco lately? Well, that's right. So this question... A closet's like five million bucks in yeah. San Francisco. So that's true, though. I don't need a home. I need a closet. Right. Because I live in, mostly in hotels. Um, so the question here is, what advice do you give those who want to own a home in today's environment where homes are scarce and exorbitantly priced? It's a great question. Um, if I was living, if I had a job in San Francisco uh, and I had limited means, but I was making some money, I would... For a short period of time, I'd rent close enough to get to my job. I'd save twenty, thirty thousand uh, dollars over time, little by little. Uh, and I, by the way, you can do this with as little as five or ten thousand dollars. So I don't want anybody creating no attitude. I can't say twenty thousand. I'd go buy the crappiest piece of property in. In the in the in some low wealth neighborhood that you can get to in a train or plane or or, or or driving to within an hour hour and a half of where you are, I'd find the crappiest in Atlanta. You can buy a shack for fifteen thousand dollars in Atlanta, Georgia, and put down fifteen hundred bucks, which you could put on your credit card if you didn't have the cash. In Detroit, you, they're giving you the properties. And paying you to take it. You can buy a piece of property in Detroit for $1,000, and they're going to give you a side lot when you buy it. And for somebody, well, Detroit, slow down. Canada's across the street. It's coming back. The only question is, who's it coming back for? 
So I think we need to reimagine how we think about this. If you want to make sure that you've got a hedge fund in poverty, get three low wealth properties. Buy it, rehab it, and rent it. Buy it, rehab it, and live in it. Buy it, rehab it, and sell it. I prefer, I prefer you buy it, rehab it, and rent it. And the rental rate will pay your mortgage, will pay your property taxes, and in time will produce an income. You buy three of those, and now you have positive income, and you have a nest egg for the future, and it's, and they, they're not growing any more land. It's just gonna, the value is going to go up. And real estate is the, home ownership is the only investment that the government pays you to do it. You know, it always angers me, Nandita, when I'm on watching CNBC or whatever, and the commentator's like, I suggest struggling families don't buy a home. It's a crop, it's a crock, crock of crap. And the dude saying that owns a home. <laughs> the guy saying don't buy a home owns a home. Because for the majority of that 30 years, you're paying mortgage interest. Mortgage interest is tax deductible against your income, which means you're going to get that money back. You're, the government is incentivizing you to be a homeowner, whereas if you're renting and you're paying $2,000 a month, you're opening a window and throwing $25,000 a year out and getting nothing for it. And by the way, I'm the largest minority-controlled owner of single-family real estate in the country, so I love for you to rent. So I'm just, as somebody who is in the business, in the business side of my life, the Home Promise Homes Company, if you want to rent, I'll sell it, I'll rent to you. I'm telling you, I want you to rent for just the minimal amount of time that you can to transition your life. We even have a program that if you get your credit score up to 700, we'll reduce your rent by 10% permanently to reward you for your own empowerment. You don't have to be a crook or an it or a jerk to make money in America. You can be honest and have integrity and treat people decently and still succeed wildly. And I and so I think home ownership for the majority of people is a great investment. Mainstream in America uh, own about 70% of them own a home. Black America, about 40% own a home. That number hasn't changed in 50 years. So that's the easiest way to build equity, to send your kid to college, to start a business, uh, to, uh, to give security for your, for your family. I like that answer because we can, can give the mortgages and home equity loans too. Amen. <laughs> And then donate more money to Operation Hope after you you make make more money. There you go. We'll come back. (laughs) So, John, this is a question, again, also from the audience. uh, It says, John, what is the biggest obstacle to change today? Ourselves. The only only problem with the new idea is the death of the old one. Uh, What are we most afraid of? I wrote a book called Love Leadership, and a philosopher Pekka Himanen said, it's a great book, John. I really like the book. And I wrote it in 2009. He said, there's two things in the world. There's love and there's fear. And what you don't love, you fear. And the reason our world is so screwed up is that most of our leaders lead by fear. And he said, that's great. Sounds really great. But you miss one thing. What are we most afraid of? Mm-hmm. And I thought about that. Fear, death. Nope. We're afraid of ourselves. We're afraid of ourselves. One of the most dangerous person in the world, Nandita, is somebody with Power, confidence, low self-esteem, and insecurity. <laughs> All right, we'll move on from there. And so, and so that combination is very <laughs> disruptive. Also, if you don't have confidence in yourself, you can't sell yourself 
to others. So the, our biggest problem in society is ourselves. My whole job is to be able to go into any audience and to talk to them without offending them. I don't need, in order for me to win, I don't have to make you lose. This is really important. We should all be endeavoring to have win, win. I don't need to, 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 to damage your self-esteem or suggest your intentions are unpure. People mean well. Most people mean well. They just have a different view of life and we can disagree without being disagreeable. And I think that we've got to, we've got to find a way to get back to some civility in this country. Somewhat related, how will the financial inclusion be impacted, good, bad, or otherwise, in the current administration? You know, this is, it, it, it's, I think actually it, it's, it, we have a chance of actually doing more. Um, I know this may not be the answer you thought you'd get, but um, I've gotten more out of Republican administrations than I've got out of Democratic administrations, first of all. Um, my Democratic friends presume that they understand our plight. The Republicans are trying to prove that they are decent human beings and understand everybody. And so I'm getting more, I'm just being blunt, I'm getting more out of them leaning into the issues. Let's keep in mind that Nixon created affirmative action. Did you know that? <laughs> uh, that Ronald Reagan signed Dr. King's legislation for his birthday. Uh, George W. Bush did more for Africa than any president before or since. So if you're going to give somebody hell for screwing up, give them heaven when they succeed. We need to be fair and reasonable when people succeed. I'm nonpartisan, but I've served both Republican and Democratic presidents. Uh, and it was John, it was President Johnson for whom he had very interesting things to say about women, Jews, and blacks, President Johnson, who signed four pieces of civil rights legislation, not the charismatic John F. Kennedy. It was Johnson who nobody suspected as being a moral leader. So I think we've got to find friends everywhere. I think that there are, because this administration or the Republicans in general seem to favor growth, and free enterprise. I think there's a chance, by the way, to reform Community Reinvestment Act in this environment to be about business development, to be about creating new minority entrepreneurs and small business owners. Let's look at 100 million people as a future marketplace and future GDP producers, not, not as charity or a handout. So with every negative, there's the potential for a positive, and we just have to see it that way. Did I, did I thread that needle? Did I, did I, did I? <laughs> I like that. Any final thoughts to the audience, John, about your book, about the way of life, about the future? You only have three minutes. I, I think we're... <laughs> Drop the mic. Uh, first of all, isn't she fabulous? Yes. Here's what I have to say. Uh, other than I love you all very much. Um, we're sitting in a moment in history right now. But history never feels historic when you're sitting in it. It just feels like another day. And I'm going to remind you that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was in that movement for 13 years. He went to Bible study. He went to parent-teacher night. He went to the grocery store. I'm almost, I mean, I'm, I'm, 
I get I get sentimental talking about this because I I just I can I can taste the moment for change. He he gave that he gave the I have a dream speech a hundred times before the march on Washington, and there were times where he thought he'd give up. He, he no one's listening to me. No one's paying attention. He di- he he died chain smoking, overweight, and depressed because he thought he'd failed. And thank God he gave it a hundredth time. What would have happened if he'd given up the 99th time? You think about that? And he gave that speech, Nandita, over and over again. But on the march in Washington, it was a woman, two women, actually, who made that day special. One was Dr. Dorothy Hyde because the men did not want Dr. King to speak because they were uh, jealous of him, because he was getting too much attention. And there was competition amongst the civil rights leaders. I I don't understand nonprofit competition. There's enough poverty to go around. (laughs) But sometimes we lose our narrative. We lose our storyline. We lose our way. And after two hours of speeches, they said, Dr. King, people people are tired. They want to go home. And he was very gracious. He said, okay. And it was Dr. Dorothy Height, God rest her soul, who said, you know, the young people listen to Dr. King. Just give him eight minutes. What could he possibly do in eight minutes? If you want to make God laugh, tell him your plan. Coincidence is God's way of staying anonymous. Literally, nobody remembered anything else except that speech. He didn't have to scream. He didn't have to holler. He didn't have to dignify anybody. He just stayed focused on the good. And Dr. King always believed, to your early point about the administration and the process, the environment, he believed the world needed an antagonist and a protagonist. He was going to let Bull Connor be the antagonist, be negative. He was going to be the protagonist and be positive. And he knew that this world was made good and we learned bad. He knew that darkness was only defined by light. He knew that goodness was, that badness was, 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 was only uh, there because goodness gave it definition. And that even Lucifer was, a fa- Lucifer was a fallen angel. God gave the devil permission to exist. So he knew that he had the wind at his back. He just had to just, just rise up, keep staying, stepping over mess and not in it. And at the end of the day, when he was given that speech, it was, uh, was it Marion Williamson? What, what, what was Marion Williamson? What was it? Was it Mahalia Jackson. Jackson, who leaned over and said, tell him about the dream, Martin. Oh. And then he left the script. And that's when he gave that soaring rhetoric. That's what, that part is what everybody remembers, but it wasn't planned. And I think that's where the magic is. There was never anybody's plan a hundred years ago that this bank would be run by a woman. But isn't it a beautiful thing? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, John. Thank you Thank for you. gracing us. Thank you for sharing so many insights with us. And uh, I have thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. And ladies and gentlemen, let's give him a big round of applause. have copies of the books, and I know John's going to be um, happy to sign. We also have some refreshments for you outside. Enjoy your evening. Let me me say this to everybody. When you go home tonight, kiss your children. Kiss those you love. Don't give up. Don't give in. That this is the greatest country in the world. No one's going to take your country from you. No one's going to take your rights from you. 
this is time for you to double down, to dig in, to become real leaders because you need to watch how you live your life and maybe the only Bible anybody else reads. This is the time. This is your time to leave a legacy.